Good morning. We are going to continue today in our study of Genesis. Um, this is our sixth week. Uh, we have one more week to go. And if you've been with us, you know that um, the way Joel kind of set, set the study up was we studied Genesis because Genesis establishes themes and patterns that then get repeated all through the Bible. Um, obviously, creation is something that we have to understand from the standpoint of knowing that God created the world or else nothing else really in the book makes sense. But there are other themes that are throughout the book that really govern the rest of the Bible. The one, one of the most notable is what happens in Genesis 3 with the fall of man. God comes face to face with the, char- the three actors in the fall, with the serpent, with Adam and Eve. And he says to the serpent, the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. And that was God's way of making a promise that there will be a, someone who will come eventually to reverse the effects of the fall. One of the things that I've always thought was so encouraging about Genesis 3, by the way, is that God actually announces salvation before he pronounces judgment. He actually talks about the seed of woman crushing the head of the serpent. That's the, the messianic seed that he promises. Then he turns to Adam and Eve and talks about all the horrible things that are going to happen as a result of their sin. I think that gives us kind of a, a little bit of a picture into the heart of our God that salvation comes first and then judgment. But after chapter 3, as you go through the rest of the book, then you are following this seed of the woman, this line of the seed. And it gets formalized in chapter 12 when God calls Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless the whole world through your descendants, meaning that the seed of the woman will come through you. And so after that, then we start following Abraham's family. And Abraham's descendants is is through, through his descendants is where the line of that seed will come, but not all of Abraham's descendants. So Abraham has two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac is the son of promise. He's the covenant bearer. And so the story follows him. Ishmael isn't, and we kind of leave Ishmael out. Isaac then has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the son of promise, so Genesis starts to follow Jacob and doesn't follow Esau. That brings us to today, because today the subject of our study is is Jacob. Jacob is one of the most unique people in the Bible. He's unique because there's a lot written about him. The story of Jacob in Genesis starts in chapter 25, and there's something about Jacob, even if he's not the main character, through almost the whole rest of the book. His life spans almost half of Genesis. And yet, for most of the stories that involve him, they aren't exactly pictures of righteous living. There's not a lot of good things necessarily written about Jacob. And actually, if you were to say compare Jacob to other patriarchs, meaning other founding fathers of Israel, he would, there's not much about him that's honorable. There's not much about him that would, you'd say is he's a role model or that he's worthy to be emulated. There's really not a lot of stories in where he's even very likable. And by the way, I tried not to take it personally that Joel thought I was the best person to preach on Jacob. <laughs> but even with all that, 
he ends up being about the second most important of the patriarchs after Abraham. If you had your kind of Mount Rushmore of the patriarchs of Israel, you'd have Abraham and then you'd probably have Jacob. He's the one for whom the nation is named. Now, the nation isn't named Jacob, but that's because God later changes Jacob's name to Israel. And that's what ends up being the name of the nation. Jacob's 12 sons form the 12 tribes of Israel. It's really under Jacob's care that the nation starts to change from just a family to the nation that he promised Abraham. So Jacob's life really becomes this kind of study in contrast because on the one hand, you have God using him in a huge way, blessing him in an amazing way, being so fundamental to the founding of God's people and yet, in his personal life, so often, he isn't acting in a way that seems to be worthy of, what's God, of what God's doing with him. So from that standpoint, I think we learn a couple of things about God as we study Jacob's life. And after all, that's why we study anybody's life, right? The point of studying the Bible isn't to study the men. You're not studying great men of God. You're studying the great God who uses men. So when you study Jacob's life, I think you learn a couple of things about God, one of which is that God is faithful. Because he is faithful to his promise to Abraham, regardless of how Jacob acts. He stays faithful because he can't be unfaithful. The second thing that I think you learn is you learn something about God's omniscience. Because God accomplishes his ends even in the midst of what oftentimes is Jacob's disobedience and unrighteousness. So those are the two things that we learn. Those two things are why we are going to go through this story in Genesis 27. Because the story in Genesis 27 is a very foundational event in Jacob's life. It changes the total the direction of his life. But it also illustrates very clearly those two lessons that we learn from Jacob's life about God. Now, before we jump into the text, it's important to have some background or else we're not going to understand the story. Jacob, as we've already said, has a brother, Esau. They're actually twins. But they are twins from the standpoint they came out of the same womb, but otherwise they aren't twins in any other way. They don't look like each other. They don't sound like each other. They don't like the same things. Frankly, they don't like each other. Esau is a very hairy man. He's a man of the outdoors. He's a skillful hunter. Jacob is not a hairy man. He's smooth. He's a man of the indoors. It says, the text tells us that Jacob is a man of peace. The implication being that Esau isn't. Esau's boisterous. Esau's loud. Esau's probably uncouth, maybe a little violent. Kind of the impression you get between the two boys is like Esau has the guys over to watch football and they're like smashing beer cans against their head and that kind of stuff, while Jacob's in another room watching PBS documentaries with mom. That's kind of the impression the text gives us. <laughs> Exacerbating that difference is the fact that the parents, Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, play favorites. Esau, as you might have guessed, is dad's favorite. Isaac favors Esau. Rebecca, the mom, favors Jacob. He's inside with her all the time. And the, the favoritism is such... This isn't like just a parent's natural affinity for a kid that maybe he has something in common with or they do sort of the same things. It's far beyond that. It's much more blatant. The impression the text gives is this is a favoritism where everybody knows it 
It's out there, and all four people in the family know. Mom likes me. Dad likes you. From the standpoint of understanding Jacob specifically, I think it's revealing that he grows up in a very patriarchal society, right, where there is absolutely no doubt who the head of the family is. It's dad. But he grows up his whole life knowing dad favors my brother Esau. Yes, he has his mom's favor. But in that society, not being a boy and knowing dad loves my brother more had to have an impact on him. There's one um, uh, event in the boy's background, too, that I think is important to know before we, get, we, before we jump into the, te- the text. And that is that at one point, Esau, by the way, Esau is the older of the twins. He came out first. That Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. And he sells it for literally a bowl of stew. And as insane as that sounds, it's exactly what he does. And the birthright, by the way, the birthright is what gave, it was what the oldest son had in the family. It meant that he got a double portion of the, the estate. So in this case, he would get two-thirds of the estate. Jacob would get one after Isaac died. And it establishes him as the head of the family. So Esau being willing to give all that up literally for a bowl of stew shows us a couple of things about the two boys. One, it shows that Esau probably isn't the wisest guy in the world. He's not the most kind of forward-thinking. Secondly, that he has absolutely no appreciation for not only his place in the family, but in his family's place within the covenant of, that God made with his grandfather Abraham. The other thing that it shows is that Jacob is always seems to be about one or two steps ahead of Esau. There again, you get this impression that Esau is kind of out living, partying, having a big old time. Jacob's over here in the corner brooding and thinking and scheming. And so he gets the birthright from Esau just because Esau doesn't think very well. So with all that, now we can turn our attention to this story in chapter 27 and see what we can learn from it. It starts out where it says Isaac is old and he's blind. What's interesting about this is that this passage makes it sound like he's on death's door, but he's actually going to live another 20 plus years. So we're not sure exactly why he's acting as if I'm about to die. Maybe it's just that he's blind, but for some reason he chooses now that now I need to hand down the blessing. So he calls Esau, he says, get your bow and arrow, go out, get some game, bring it back to me, cook it, we'll eat it, and I'll hand you the blessing. Now, I think there's a danger sometimes if we've been believers for a long time and we've read a lot of Bible stories, that you can kind of fall into this sort of sense of, well, Bible people do Bible things. And even if I don't fully understand it, that's just what Bible people do. I think there's a danger in that because I think we need to understand what's going on. And in this case, what does it mean that he's going to hand down a blessing? Because let's face it, if you have several kids, right, and you called him in and you said to your oldest, Billy, you are going to prosper like the ewes on Mount Gilead and your brothers and sisters will bow down and serve you all the days of their life. Will that really have any effect on Billy's future? No, not at all. Might honk off Billy's siblings, but as far as what it does to Billy, it has no effect. Well, in this culture, things are a little different. And this blessing that, he, that Isaac wants to give probably has two elements to it. There's a cultural element, which is he is just saying, now, 
Esau, you are the new head of the family once I'm gone. Now, we don't know if Isaac knows about the whole birthright transaction. If he does, he's just ignoring it. But he may not know about it. So that's the cultural part. I am officially handing over the headship of the family to you. But because Isaac is Abraham's son, there's a second element to this. And that this blessing will will be his way of saying, you now take the torch of the covenant, you become the covenant bearer. And you are now the next son of promise, and it will be through you that the seed of woman will come. The promised one. So from that standpoint, this is an enormously momentous event. Now, the reason that he tells Esau to go out and hunt game and bring back food, probably twofold. We, we learn earlier in the text that one of the, one of the main reasons that Esau is Isaac's favorite is because Esau brings him really good food. I mean, it's a text that doesn't make Isaac sound like the deepest guy in the world. But in, so that's part of it. But the other part of it is, that in this culture, again, you would eat a meal to signify things. If you made a covenant with each other, you wouldn't sign contracts. You'd have a covenant meal. And so from that standpoint, what, he's, what he wants to do is, you go out, get the game, bring it back, and we will make this official by eating together, and then I will give you the official blessing. So that's what's going on. Well, unbeknownst to Isaac, his wife Rebecca overhears it. Rebecca, being the loving wife and supportive, hus- or supportive mother that she is, goes to Jacob and says, Hey, I just overheard your father saying he's going to pass on the family blessing to Esau. I've got a plan on how we can deceive your dad and cheat your brother. Are you in? It's essentially what she says. Jacob, in verse 11, gives his response. And this gives us a window into the soul of Jacob. And Jacob, of course, responds like we would expect him to respond. Mother, how can you ask me to do such a thing? How can I lie to my father and cheat my brother? I love both of them. I would never do that. Is that what verse 11 says? Nope. Verse 11 just says, what if we get caught? You want me to lie and cheat? No problem. I'm on board. But what if we get caught? Dad's blind. He's going to want to touch me. When he touches me, he's going to know I'm not Esau. I'm not only not going to get the blessing, I'm not going to get the curse either. Or I'm I'm going to actually get cursed instead of getting a blessing. Well, Rebecca in verse 13 kind of turns a little messianic and says, any curse will be on me. Don't worry about it. And actually what seems to be implied there is, I got a plan. Stick with me. This isn't a problem. By the way, something to consider here that I didn't point out earlier, and that is both Jacob and Esau in this story, you can read it, and it sounds like they're fairly young men, right? They're well into middle age. They're both north of 40 as this goes on. So these aren't two young guys being manipulated by their parents. These are grown men going through this. So Rebecca says, go get me a couple of goats from the flock, bring it back, and I'm going to make them for your father. What's interesting there is Esau has been told to go out and get wild game, right? So apparently Rebekah knows that she can take goats from the flock, prepare them in such a way that Isaac won't know the difference. And if you think about it, she's been married to him for decades now, so she knows exactly how he likes his food. That's not a problem. She's got it covered. Then verse 15 is kind of interesting. 
It says, Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her elder son, which were with her in her house, and put them on Jacob. Now, why it made a difference that they needed to be his best garments? Because again, Isaac's blind, right? But she puts the garments on him, and we'll find this out later, because he needs to smell like Esau. Okay? Then in verse 16, she takes the skins of the goats that they just killed to make the meal, and she puts them on Jacob, and he presumably has a long sleeve garment on, so they must not be worrying about his arms. But they put him on the backs of his hands and then put him on his neck. Now that begs a question. How hairy is Esau? <laughs> right? That you're going to feel like goat and go, yeah, that's Esau. <laughs> right? I mean, Esau must be an interesting looking guy from that standpoint. Well, now you have kind of this comical sight of Jacob carrying food in to see his dad, wearing Esau's clothes and goat skins on his hands and his neck. That's what he does. And he walks in. Verse 18, he walks in and says, my father. And it's interesting, Isaac's response, who are you, my son? And Jacob goes, I am Esau, your firstborn. And there's kind of an emphasis on firstborn there. I've done as you told me, get up, let's eat food, let's get the blessing. That's what he says. And then we run into the first problem that maybe Isaac and, or the, maybe that J, Rebecca and Jacob didn't think through. And that is, Isaac says, how in the world are you already back? How did you have time to go hunting, find the game, shoot the game, field dress the game, bring it back, prepare it, and bring it in here in whatever time period it's been, right? And of course, Rebecca and Jacob had to do it quickly because they had to get it done before Esau got back, right? But something doesn't smell right to Isaac. I mean, my goodness, how in the world did you do that that quickly? Well, here we get our second window into Jacob's soul. And Jacob says, because the Lord your God caused it to happen to me. Two things this tells us about Jacob. One is... Do you notice he doesn't hesitate a bit? Just bam, comes up with a lie like that. So that means he's a good and very practiced liar. How do you get good at lying? You'll, you do it a lot. It's like anything else, right? Jacob, I mean, it is, he thinks on his feet and comes up with that's no problem at all. But secondly, the, what we see is absolutely no fear of God at all. Because if you look there, do you, do you notice that Lord there is all in caps. You see that? So that means that he's called God by kind of the covenant-keeping name Yahweh. And by invoking that, what he says is that Yahweh, your God, Dad, gave me favor and enabled me to go out and get this game that quickly. The same God that blessed your dad, Abraham, and blessed you, that God gave me favor so that I could bring this back. That's what he does. And that's one where you just kind of take a step back and go, wow. So not only are you willing to lie and cheat, you're willing to blaspheme too. It's actually one of those where if you were standing next to Jacob, you'd take a step away from him because you think it's going to be, he's going to be vaporized, right? Well, that seems to satisfy Isaac. 
So then Isaac says one more test. Come close that I may feel you, my son, whether you really are my son Esau. What's interesting about this whole picture is the skepticism of Isaac. And I think it gives you another element to the dysfunction in this family. Not only did we see Rebecca and Jacob run off and instantly start scheming and neither one thought anything of it, but they, Isaac has been living in this family for decades with these two kids and with this all favoritism and so on and so forth, and he's instantly paranoid about this whole thing. Something isn't right here. And you'd think in a, in a happier family, he wouldn't be so skeptical. So then he says, well, come close to me. So he came close, he felt him, felt his hands, maybe felt the neck, felt like a goat. So, yep, this must be Esau. So then he says, are you really, verse 24, are you really my son Esau? And you kind of get the impression at this point that God is sort of giving Jacob an out. There's one last chance here where you can come clean. You're either going to come clean or you are going to seal your fate. Jacob chooses answer B. You bet I am, Dad. I'm Esau. And boy, at this point, you remove any possibility of saying, well, this was just a misunderstanding. This is deceit, pure and simple. He's now answered twice that I am Esau. And this one specifically, are you really Esau? Yeah, you bet I am. So then Isaac says, well, bring me the food. And I'll bless you. So he brought it to him. He brought him the wine and he drank. And then, then he's, Isaac's still not done. He's still not totally buying this. So one more test. Come close and kiss me, my son. So Jacob does that. And he comes close. And he do, the reason Isaac does that is he wants to smell him. And he smells him and he goes and he kind of exclaims. And this is where the kind of the dam finally breaks. And Isaac says, yes, that's the smell of Esau. That's my boy. If you have an NIV, you might notice there in verse 27, it actually says, ah, the smell of the field. I think that's a great translation. But it's just sort of like he, he actually exclaims, that's, you know, he's smelling goat skin in his clothes, but it's like, that's the smell of the field, that that's where Esau is. You can almost picture Jacob kind of rolling his eyes at this point. Yeah, you, you love Esau, don't you? Right? And then once he knows or once he has convinced in his mind that this really is Jacob, then he gives him the official blessing. May God give you of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. May everyone serve you. May you rule over your brothers. It's not clear why he uses the plural there since there's only one brother. But he officially says, you are the man. And notice at the end of verse 29 what he says, the last two phrases in 29. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those, and blessed be those who bless you. That is straight out of God's um, covenant with Abraham. God said, Abraham, I will curse those who curse you and bless those who bless you. So this is very much an official handing off saying, you are the son of promise now. You are the covenant bearer. It will be through you that the seed of woman comes. And the fact that he says this is why this can't be repeated. It can only be given to one son. Well, at this point, the plan has worked perfectly. Jacob walks out. They're probably high-fiving each other. It worked great, Mom. I got the blessing perfect. Your plan was great. Well, if there's a musical score to this, this music would change and all of a sudden became very ominous because here comes in, bouncing in Esau. 
Hey, get up, Dad, I got your food. And we won't go through the whole text, but it goes like you would guess it would go. He walks in, Isaac's like, who the heck are you? I'm Esau. I just was with you. No, you weren't. And then it dawns on Isaac what's happening. It talks about the text. He he physically starts shaking because he is so horrified by the fact that he was duped. And he even says, your brother deceived me. And he has it. But then he says, but it doesn't matter because I already gave him the blessing and there isn't any recourse. And Esau even says, isn't there anything for me? Isn't there, can you give me something? And Isaac's like, well, yeah, I can give you like the lamest blessing ever if you want that. And he does. And basically what the blessing ends up being is everything Jacob got, you don't. That's the blessing, essentially. And as you can imagine, Esau walks out not only upset, but enraged and vows to kill Jacob. And as a result, Jacob has to flee. Well, that's the story. So if we're thinking about it, and we go back to what we said at the beginning, what this story shows us, I think there are two lessons that we learn from it. One is that we serve a faithful God. Turn over to chapter 28, if you still have your Bible open. And in chapter 8, starting in verse 13, at this point, Jacob has already fled. And he's actually on his way to his mother's home, um, hundreds of miles away because he's having to leave because of what he did to Esau. And God meets him on the way at a place called Bethel. And this is where Jacob has the, um, the vision of the stairway to heaven. Um, and God appears to him in a vision and he blesses him. And if you scan down through verses 13 and 14 and, and then into 15, what's interesting is what isn't there. And what you'll notice isn't there is God saying anything to him about what just happened. He doesn't bring it up at all. He says nothing about it. Now, again, why is Jacob even in this place where God met him? The reason he's there is because he lied, he cheated, and he blasphemed. That's why he's even there at all. And yet God doesn't say a word about that. And and look at verse 15 where he ends the blessing. He says, and this is God speaking, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It's an amazing blessing that he gives him based on everything we have seen in Jacob's life up to this point. But the reason he does it is because he's being faithful to the promise he made to Abraham. His faithfulness has nothing to do with Jacob's behavior. It has everything to do with he made a covenant, so he's going to stay faithful to it. And that's who our God is. We serve an utterly faithful God who cannot be unfaithful because it would go against his nature. And he is faithful regardless of whether we are or not, regardless of what goes on in the world. And as we walk through this life, and we experience the unfaithfulness of others, and we ourselves are unfaithful, we know that we have confidence in the rock that is our God that is always, always, always faithful. And it also means that everything in this we know to be true, and that it either will or has happened, absolutely positively. That becomes an anchor for us. 
The second lesson that I think we learn from this is that we serve a big God. If you went back to chapter 25, and we're not going to do that, but if you went back to chapter 25, God actually talks to Rebecca, has an interaction with Rebecca while she is pregnant with Esau and Jacob. And God says to her, there are two nations in you, and the older will serve the younger. Now, again, this is before they were even born. She's carrying them at the time. And God says to her, the older Esau will serve the younger. So that is his way of saying that the younger one, Jacob, is the son of promise. So that means that Rebekah knows about that their entire lives and knows that going into chapter 27. But the other thing that means is that Isaac knew it too. And if that's the case, then that puts a different light on Isaac's behavior in chapter 27. Because even though he knows Jacob's the son of promise, what he decides to do is do an end run around that and say, nope, Esau's my boy. Esau's going to be the son of promise. So if that's the situation then, you know, you can read chapter 27 and it seems like Isaac is just doing what he would normally do. But Isaac's actually acting more sinfully or as sinfully or more than anybody else. Because he knows the truth and decides to try and get around it on his own. And then if you look at Esau, the one sympathetic character in it, you kind of root for Esau in that story, don't you? But Esau knows that he sold the birthright. So from that standpoint, he knows he doesn't deserve the blessing. So when you put it all together, all four characters in our story are acting out of selfish motives. Nobody's righteous. Nobody's honorable. And yet, what's the outcome? The outcome at the end of 27 is exactly what God wanted. God designated Jacob as the son of promise, and Jacob walks away from that as a son of promise. And I think that in a very small story, a small section, tells us something about our God. And that is that God's sovereignty is so big And his omniscience means that all of the actions of man, be they righteous, be they sinful, accomplish God's ends. That that God being omniscient, meaning that he's all-knowing and omnipotent, he's all-powerful, means that Everything that man does, whether it's sinful or righteous, it all works together to accomplish God's ends. That even beyond God accomplishing his ends in spite of sin, he's able to accomplish his ends using sin, utilizing it. That doesn't mean it ever justifies sin. It doesn't mean it takes away the ramifications of sin. One of the things you know if you read the rest of Genesis is that all four of those people suffer ramifications because of what they do here. And God never needs sin, but God's sovereignty is so big and he is omniscient and omnipotent, which means he can utilize all, all, all the actions of men to accomplish his ends. And I think that means we can approach him in prayer with an enormous amount of confidence. Because if he can do that, he can handle anything I bring to him. My wife and I are going through a kind of a soul-crushing, soul, maybe, I don't know, I don't want to exaggerate it, but 
a soul-tearing, soul-challenging trial right now. And there's just, there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. There's nothing like you can look out and go, well, if this happens or if this happens, it's going to go away. It just seems like it's darkness as far as you can look, as far as the eye can see. And even beyond that, it's like we're in a constant state of fog. We just don't know what to do. You know, you just never, from day to day, you just never know what should the next step be. We find ourselves praying for wisdom continually, but just never really knowing. And, and even when you're not dealing with it straight ahead or you're not dealing with it, there's this kind of low-level hum of stress which never goes away. And it's exhausting. And if you've ever been in something like that, you know that the temptation is just to kind of say, I give up. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's ever going to change. Whatever. I, I, you know, who cares anymore? And then you come to a passage like this. And you see what this means about God's nature and who God is and the size of God and how big he is. And you realize anything I'm going through is dwarfed by him. And that no matter what I do, or that all the screwed up things that I do and all the screwed up things that are going on by people around me, and all even the unrighteous, messed up things by anybody anywhere in the world is all being used to accomplish his ends, it changes the perspective you have. Chris, earlier, I think it was earlier this year, admonished us that when we pray, we should pause and before we kind of launch into our prayer, stop, consider who it is you're approaching. And I, it was in, in relation to God's holiness. I think this fits there too. I think we can pause before we pray and say, I am approaching a big, big God who accomplishes his ends through the actions of everyone at all times. And that that's what it means that he's omniscient. And if he's omniscient, he can handle anything I bring to him. It not only should put us in awe, but give us incredible confidence as we come before him. So that's the lessons. We serve a faithful God. We serve a big God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word being living and active, the fact that we can draw lessons about you out of a story that took place thousands of years ago in a radically different culture and a story about four people acting sinfully and yet what it tells us about you because your word's alive and I thank you for that. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you are immense and awesome. And the fact that we can come boldly before you because we're justified, but we can come confident before you because of who you are. On top of all that, Father, then you actually want to be in a personal relationship with us. Make that real to us this week as we go out. In Christ's name, amen.